when they found out that their loved one had died, it was, you know, you don't ever get over that as a journalist, seeing people react to the news, the worst news of their life. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Kate Snow, an Emmy award-winning journalist who now serves as senior national correspondent at NBC News and anchor of the Sunday broadcast of Nightly News. On the last episode of the NBC show, Kate aired an extraordinary 14-minute report on gun violence in America. In the report, she and three other correspondents embedded with emergency responders to examine one night in American gun crime. I called up Kate this week to discuss how that report came together over the course of several months, how an NBC crew of dozens worked to turn around the segment in less than 24 hours, and what she learned about the epidemic of gun violence in America by seeing it up close. Kate, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be with you. So Nightly News on Sunday aired an extraordinary report on gun violence in America, which had four correspondents, including yourself, embed with emergency responders for one night in four cities. What the report did, that I, which I thought was really fascinating, was it tackled the issue by examining a snapshot of it, by looking at this one night, mm-hmm. which really demonstrated the scope and the regularity of the violence. Could you run us through what you and your colleagues saw while reporting this out? Yeah. And, and Aiden, I would say that was the point, right? That was why we did it this way, was to really zoom in um, just in one night in July on a Saturday night. Um, and what we saw, as you said, was, was I think what, what struck me most was the regularity of it, right? We saw sort of what everyone described to us as, oh, this is what always happens. This is what happens not even just on Saturday nights. On where I was in Chicago, the pastor I was with said, this happens every single night. There is a regularity to the gun violence that happens, and it's often... Um, not big. It's often not a mass shooting, but a shooting of one person or two people, sometimes not fatal. Sometimes, yes, it's a homicide, but there's a regularity to it. Um, I think we saw different slices of it. I was in Chicago uh, with this pastor, um, Donovan Price, who goes out every night to, when he hears about a shooting, he'll go to the scene um, because he wants to be with the families. And he, he says that's his mission is to pastor to families, to, to join them in prayer, to help them with whatever they need in that moment. Um, other people were in, in other scenarios, like uh, Gabe Gutierrez was in Maryland and he was at the biggest trauma center, world-renowned trauma center at the University of Maryland outside of Baltimore. <clears throat> then my colleague Gotti Schwartz was in Houston with police on the overnight shift. Um, and then Jesse Kirsch was in Philadelphia, actually with narcotics officers, but they see a great amount of gun violence. What was the genesis of that idea? Was it, did you set out with the report to say, okay, we want to be on the ground in these four cities for one night to show that this is a regular occurrence and that we're almost sort of numb to this level of gun violence mm-hmm. because it's truly happening so frequently every single night in America? So this was months in the making, I should say, first off. Um, right. My executive producer, our executive producer on Weekend Nightly News, Matt Frucci, is the one who really had the germ of the idea. You know, he said, what if we looked at one night? What if we really 
dug in on gun violence as a, as a topic. Um, and that was also part of a broader conversation that was going on at, at NBC News. And this ended up being, our project ended up being a part of a two-week look at gun violence across the network, across all of our platforms, all of our broadcasts, all of our digital. So that's the context. Um, but yes, I think what, what Matt's original idea was and what we executed, I hope, is that we wanted to zero in on one night in many different kinds of places. We didn't have the four cities originally picked. We we looked all over the country. As you can imagine, we had to coordinate with you know, police departments and hospitals. And we had to, we had to seek out places that wanted us to come and were, were willing and able to, to host us. We also had to be in places that we correspondents could get to, that crews could get to. So there were a lot of factors involved in choosing where we went. We wanted a diversity of situations. We, we wanted different kinds of populations, different size cities, different geographical locations. So all of that was considered as we were planning. You also had a pretty incredible turnaround. Yeah. You filmed this, if I'm not mistaken, last Saturday night, right? That's right. And then turned around a 12-minute package on these four cities for the Sunday night show. How did you pull that off? Yeah, we did, I think, 14 minutes in total of right. the show was devoted to this. If you include the you know the top of the show, um, the intro, and then my introduction to the tape piece. Um, how did we pull that off? A lot of people... <laughs> A lot of people were involved, um, dozens and dozens of people. Just to give you a sense, um, since this is media, I, I think I can give you a sense for for the the scope. We had our and our nightly news weekend team, which you might imagine is a smaller team compared to the weekday team, sure, right? People yeah. willing to work Saturdays and Sundays. Um, a lot of them came in on their own time. They came in early. Um, we started, I'll start with the, the crew, the, the field situation was we had field producers, correspondence, camera, audio, security with us. Um, and that takes a lot to, to set up in the first place. That involves our assignment desk and all kinds of different people. So that all happened. And then we're out there shooting and then we had to feed everything back at about, I think we all wrapped around 4, 4.30 in the morning. At least that's when I wrapped, which actually was 4.30 Chicago, was 5.30 Eastern time. Oh, right, and we had to feed all of our material in from the four different cities, which had been hours and hours of coverage. We'd all been out for like, I don't know, six hours. Yeah. So all that material was feeding into New York. People came in early. They got here at 5 a.m. Lots of people came in to log the tape, get it in the system. And then I was on a plane while they started trying to structure what the piece would look like and how we were going to go through the timeline of the evening in all four cities, like which chunks do we use and which do we leave out? Obviously, a lot of things get get left on the edit room floor. Um, so that was a whole other process. By the time I landed in New York at one o'clock p.m. after sleeping like two hours and getting on a plane, um, we had a structure. I weighed in. I rewrote some things. Other people rewrote, you know, the other correspondents rewrote some things. And then we had a script ready by mid-afternoon, which then had to go into six different edit rooms because um, you couldn't just have one editor produce that length of a piece in that amount of time. So we broke it into six pieces. And those editors had actually been talking for weeks about how they would execute because you wanted it to look the same. You wanted it to be seamless and look, have the same feel throughout. And I think it, it did an incredible job, compelling from start to finish. Thank you. I'm I'm so fascinated by the idea of doing a story like this where you spend months putting it together 
and getting the approvals to do it, figuring out where to do it, getting the security done. And then you have one night and another day to turn it around. It's a little Uh, bit crazy, to be honest with you. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. But but, Uh, but it took a lot of planning. It just took a lot of coordination. And look, we, I mean, I have to say we had the support of everyone to the highest levels of NBC News, Noah Oppenheim, um, Cesar Conde, who's the president of the news division, who sent me a note afterwards. And everyone has been sending us notes to say that they watched and they appreciated it and they supported it hundred percent. So we're lucky. We're really lucky that yeah. we had the venue to, to do this. I actually have heard from not to gas NBC news up too much, but I've heard from other people at NBC news that it's a really good place for doing those sorts of ambitious projects on like stories that matter, you know, that are that's right. Yeah. Now I used to cover crime on the night shift uh, in New York and mm-hmm. my shift was Tuesdays through Saturdays, which I didn't really understand until I started and realized that most violent crime happens on weekend nights. Yeah. Is that why you chose July 16th, a Saturday night to film yeah. this report? So two things. One, I work the Sunday shift every week. And so every right. week, myself and my colleagues come in and we see the blotter. We see what happened overnight all over the country, right? We're getting, you know, nine shootings in this city and 10 in this one and five in this one. Which ones are we even going to cover? And honestly, most weekends, we can't even scratch the surface, right? We, we tend to, in the media, cover the big mass shootings because they're large scale and they deserve attention. But that's not to say that everything else doesn't deserve attention. So that was part of the genesis, too, of, of the project in the first place. Um, and we chose a Saturday in July on purpose. We, we waited until the summer because we all know statistically crime goes up in the warm months. Um, where I was in Chicago, everyone was saying, oh, if it were a little warmer tonight, we actually would have more shootings. It was 68 degrees when we went out right. on Saturday night, which was unusually cool for a July Saturday. Um, and we had fewer we had fewer incidents than they usually do on a, on a Saturday because of the weather. And the, the common wisdom with that is that when it's warmer, people are outside. That's right. They're, they're outside. They're socializing. They might be having a right. barbecue. Um and frankly, where I was in Chicago, there's a lot of gang violence. And I think it's easier to, you know, if you're wanting to do something, it's easier to find people when they're all outdoors. Right, exactly. And I think the perverse uh, side effect of that for, from a media perspective is that the summer weekend is also when people are the most tuned out yeah. uh, of the news. Yeah. So you That's have cool. these weekends that are filled with these mass shootings and people show up on Monday and it's no longer in the news anymore. What shocked you most about what you or any of the other correspondents saw while you were you were working this particular night shift? Um, there are a lot of things. I think the thing that shocked me the most was how exhausted everyone is mm-hmm. by the routine of it all. And I, I use that word loosely. I mean, a shooting to the family involved and the people involved is not routine, but for the responders and even the pastor I was with, who is in a sense a responder, um, there's a regularity. They know exactly what's going to happen. Like they're listening to the scanners. They hear the police traffic. Okay, there's been a shooting. What's the first thing we do, whether it's the hospital doctors or the police or the pastor, they have a routine. They, they, they launch into action. They get there. They see it. They process. They help. 
And then they return to base and wait for the next one. And over and over and over and over all night long, repeat that in every city and every town across the country. That's what struck me the most was just how exhausting it is. I mean, it was exhausting for me and I was there one night, you know? I was also struck by, despite the fact that this happens with such regularity and that these people are on the front lines of it, it, none of them seemed particularly desensitized to it, Correct. right? They they still felt like every single, you know, every single death that happened in the hospital in yeah. Baltimore, every single family that the pastor, Donovan Price, had to console, it really affected them and meant something to them. It did. And I actually wasn't expecting that. Um, the pastor told me in the beginning of the evening that he has been to get this a thousand at least homicide scenes, 1,000 homicide scenes he himself has been to in the last five or six years that he's been doing this work. So that was very shocking to hear. And so I thought maybe it does become sort of, you get immune to it. But by the middle of the evening, he was telling me about how sometimes it's upsetting and he feels sad. And he said in this middle of the evening interview, it was in the dark, I think it was about 10 o'clock, 1030 at night. He said, you know, sometimes I cry, but he was still very stoic and speaking to me completely, you know, not, he was not upset. He just said, sometimes I cry. And then by 3.30 in the morning, he was crying. We had just been at the University of Chicago hospital. You see the scene in the nightly news piece. Um, We got there. We went there because we heard that someone had been taken to the hospital in an ambulance, gunshot wounds, multiple gunshot wounds. By the time we get there, we know that it's a 31-year-old man. We see all of his family outside the ER. The pastors, we're across the street trying to be respectful. The pastor is, is right up in there trying to talk to the family and calm them down. People were really upset and mad. Um, at each other, at the situation, understandably, high emotions. When they found out that their loved one had died, it was, you know, you don't ever get over that as a journalist, seeing people react to the news, the worst news of their life, right? Crumpled, hugging each other, screaming. So it was upsetting. Um, And so after that scene, after it was all kind of the family had left and gone home, we pulled the pastor aside. It started to rain, pouring rain. And we're under this little overhang and he was musing about the evening and he started to get upset. He said, you know, no matter how many times I do this, you're opening yourself up. And in opening yourself, a little bit of this trauma gets in every time. And he said, and sometimes it feels like too much. And he he started to cry. That was really, I thought the most moving part of the report was that interview where he said, you know, he's got a lot of, of love himself. He's been loved before and that he's trying to give that to, to other people. And it was it was hard to watch, yeah. but it was really it was really powerful. And he also said, I can give love because I'm a spiritual man and I know that eventually there's love coming back to me. He was alluding to in the next life. You know, in he the- said after there's a lot of love there. What is his position as far as you know on what is happening in communities uh, like his own in Chicago, and and does he does he think that that something needs to happen? Does he have any you know is yes. he arguing to you that something needs to happen to get this to change? Here's what's interesting: we, it never got political. Like we we never talked about policy, you know, concretely about sort of 
what should Congress be doing or what mm. what should the mayor be doing? We didn't we I couldn't believe that over the course of the night, it just sort of never came up. Um, I didn't ask him his position, for example, on guns, on weapons, on mm. policies about gun ownership didn't come up. Um, I thought about that later after the night was over. I thought, wow, that's funny. We didn't, you know, the sort of thing that everybody talks about when you hear about gun violence, we, we didn't go there. But we did talk about his thoughts on what needs to change. And what he said to me, and a little piece of it was in the nightly piece, but it was a much longer conversation where he was saying, look, until the whole country, all Americans pay attention to my neighborhood, and the neighborhoods in every city that we were profiling in every place in this country, if, until we all open our eyes and realize this is happening so regularly, there are no solutions without awareness and interest and, you know, without people caring enough to want to help. Because right now he, they feel forgotten. Right. He said to me, you all cover the mass shootings and that's appropriate. And there had, you know, just been the one in Highland Park outside of Chicago, a predominantly white suburb north of Chicago, a very affluent place. And he said, he basically was saying, you know, you cover those, but you don't cover us. And he said, there's a tendency in the public to blame our community for what happens in our community, speaking of South and West Chicago. Hmm. And I, I said, do you think that's in the longer version that we're putting up on nightly films, by the way, we're putting a longer extended cut of my Chicago time. Um, we'll give you the link to that when it, when it Please goes do. live, It'll probably be yeah. later to later tomorrow. Um, that I lost my train of thought, but in the longer version, we're going to be including part of this conversation. I said, I said, do you think the racial component matters? And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. That to him, as a, as a black man, as a pastor, that is very much a part of why we're not all paying attention. And that, again, right. is the beginning to finding solutions. You make the point in the report that despite the attention placed on mass shootings, which are, of course, like eminently worthy, newsworthy tragedies, far more Americans are killed in smaller incidents, mm -hmm. uh, like the ones that he's describing across the country every night. Did you get a sense doing this report what the scale of the gun violence problem is in America right now? I mean, we all know the numbers, right? It's thousands and thousands a year. I feel like I did get a better sense of the scale seeing it up close. Mm. I feel like if every if everyone listening had this opportunity to spend a whole night somewhere, you would get a better sense for how pervasive it is. I talked to this woman, Diane, who lost both of her 20-something sons in the last five months, one in December, and then one on the day before Mother's Day. He had just gone to buy her a Mother's Day cake for their celebration. He was shot down in her front yard outside her house. Um, and you just, when you talk to real people and you sit, I sat with her for a half hour on a front stoop talking. She's a mom just like I am. She's got four daughters and the two sons who are gone. So she's still raising four daughters. Um, I have two kids. You know, it, just, it really, really hit me in a way that uh, it hadn't maybe before. Mm. 
Uh, one of the comments from the report that really stayed with me is from Tom Scalia, who uh, is the trauma surgeon who runs the Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore. He said, this is one night in one city in the richest country in the world. How can this make sense? I think that's a question that a lot of the reporting on violent crime in America is seeking to answer. Have you wrestled with that question? How does this make sense in America? Have you wrestled with that question in your reporting? Yeah, I, I certainly have. I, I think most Americans have wrestled with that question. How is this happening in our country? I, I, I personally think it doesn't matter what your your politics are or where you live in this country. You're confronted with the amount of gun violence. And I'd like to believe that no one wants to see this this level of, of death happening where we where we live. So. Yes, I've wrestled with it personally, professionally, um, on other stories that I've done. You know, many, many times I've done stories looking at solutions, looking at, you know, youth programs that that attempt to intervene and 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 stop the violence by stopping kids from entering gangs, for example. I've I've looked at um, laws. I've looked at the debate over um, gun measures and whether you know I've I've spent a lot of time talking to Sandy Hook Promise, for example. Um, a, a, a mass shooting that I covered in, you know, on the day that it happened, Sandy Hook. Um, mm-hmm. So I've certainly wrestled with the, the questions. I don't think there's one answer. I think there's, and the pastor said this to me the other night, there are a whole lot of things that are working. There are mentoring programs, for example, where, you know, one-to-one mentors are helping young people make different choices and get, get out of a life that might be violent. Um, I could sit here forever and talk about things that are working, but I think the problem to me seems to be that there's not one solution. There's not one coherent thing that has happened to to solve it all on a mass on a on a wide range level. Right. You look at the the statistics are crazy when it comes to gun violence. I think we average tens of thousands, I think it's around 40,000 gun deaths a year, which is astronomically higher than any other developed country. Yeah. When you speak to Americans, the families of the victims, police, doctors, activists in these cities. Is there a consensus on the root causes of this gun violence? Is is there any understanding of why America is so much more violent than any other developed country? Well, I'll tell you that the mother that I just mentioned, Diane, said to me, there are too many guns in my neighborhood. She said, you know, she lives in Chicago in a neighborhood where there is gang violence. And she said, one of my sons, the younger son, fell in with kind of a rough crowd. I wasn't happy about it. This is a woman, by the way, who works two jobs, works for the Transit Authority in Chicago at a booth overnight, um, also works in a, as a hairstylist. I mean, this is, this is a woman who's struck me as just a really good mom who's working hard for her kids. They are educated. One of her children's in college. The others are older right now. Um working, all of them. So this is not, you know, this is not a story of a family that is so messed up and has made all the wrong choices. Not at all. Not at all. And she said to me, there are too many weapons available in my community. So, so that is definitely something I've heard. Um, And you hear that from authorities in Chicago. I've interviewed the mayor of Chicago a couple, uh, two summers ago about this. And and she said the same thing. They're coming in from guns are coming in from Indiana, predominantly from other states where the rules are different than Chicago. They're smuggled in. So I don't know. Uh, I, you you hear a variety of things. I also hear I hear from people who don't think that the weapons are the problem, that it's the people that are the problem. 
I hear from those folks all the time on my social media after our piece aired on Sunday. Um, you know, we often get social media comments from the people that are upset, right? So yeah. there were a lot of people feeding back saying great things about our, our efforts, but there were other people saying like, don't blame this on the Second Amendment. Mm. It's an argument that you hear from conservatives all the time that sort of gun control focuses on legally purchased automatic rifles, let's say, which are used in a fraction of gun violence cases, while handguns and other illegally bought guns are used mm -hmm. in a vast majority of shootings. But the one constant is that there are just so many guns in this country. Yeah. And that is the one thing that is the difference between the United States and other developed countries, is that we just That's have right. so many more guns than those other countries. Now, do you think that the media has been neglecting coverage of just the pervasive level of gun violence in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and instead focusing on mass shootings. Do you think that there should be a correction in how the media pays attention to these, these sorts of, of smaller scale, but still much vaster in quantity gun violence cases? Yeah, I, I struggle with that. I think there should be a conversation in every newsroom. I think it's very different when you're national NBC news versus local news, um, which I was in also. I, I worked in New Mexico quite a while ago now, but that's where I started. And we used to cover gun violence a lot in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a, it's a big problem there. So I think the conversation is different depending on who your audience is and what your scale is. I also think just systemically in terms of how we cover the news, it would be, as I said earlier, it would be impossible to cover every single thing that happens. The scale is too vast for us to cover especially on a national level. Like we wouldn't, if I, if I did nightly news on Sunday and literally just sat there and read out every gun incident that happened over the weekend, over the Saturday night, we'd be done with, we'd be over half an hour. Right. I mean, you could almost do it live and just read out the cases of gun violence that are happening. Like at the moment. I mean, maybe yeah. that's a thought. Maybe somebody should do that. I, right. I don't know how we change things. And as a citizen of this country, I, I deeply want to see things change. So right. um, we're doing the, as best we can to, to, you know, to increase the visibility. Um, and I think we need to do this not just on gun violence, but on other issues too. After this aired, we were talking in the newsroom. I cover substance abuse a lot. That's one of the mm. areas that I cover a lot. I cover mental health a lot. Maybe we should be focusing on those issues for one night. Maybe we should, you know, dedicate 14 minutes to a piece about, I mean, the pervasiveness of fentanyl right now and the number of people who are dying from fentanyl overdose and poisoning is, it's insane. I was going to ask if you, you had plans to do more ambitious reports <laughs> I'm like getting this a little ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> we haven't actually, <laughs> yeah, we were just, we were just sort of, you know, throwing out ideas after this right. one went well, we were saying maybe this is a model. Maybe we do some more. Mm. We haven't gotten there yet. In terms, but if people want to send their ideas, my social media is at TV Kate Snow on all social media platforms. So you you know hit me up. Tell me what you think we should be doing. You've had such an incredible career in journalism. You've led all these big investigative pieces, like the report that you won an Emmy for, where you interviewed more than two dozen Bill Cosby accusers. You had you know you've done extensive reporting on the heroin epidemic in uh, in the United States. But if I'm not mistaken, you, did you start your career on the White House beat? 
<laughs> well, not quite. I started in New Mexico. Well, before that, okay. I was in radio. Yeah, t- tell me, started in radio. I want to hear how you got into <laughs> journalism. I want to hear all about it. Um, I went to Cornell University uh, and I was going to, I didn't know, have any idea what I wanted to do undergrad. And one day I saw a sign on the wall for a radio station in my dorm. And my friend and I went to this meeting, this organizational meeting. And I was like, I want to play music. I want to be a DJ. And when I got there, they said, no, really what we need are news people. So you can draw a straight line from saying, I'll do the news (laughs) at this local radio. It was actually a commercial radio station off campus um, in Ithaca, New York. And then from there, I ended up going to grad school for a couple of years, staying in radio on the side, like working overnight shifts and things to keep my foot in that door. Deciding that I really wanted, that's what I really wanted to do was journalism. Um, That came after grad school. And then I went, I was a producer booker at CNN for a couple of years, entry level, went to New Mexico to learn really how to do TV in a local market, came back to CNN in Atlanta, moved to DC, covered Capitol Hill. So not quite the White House yet, covered Capitol Hill, (laughs) CNN. Built built up to it. But I was covering politics in DC for a little while. I was um, Mm -hmm. for CNN for about four years, and then ABC hired me to be the White House correspondent. So that's where the White House comes in. And then ABC moved me to New York because um, they wanted me to be the weekend Good Morning America anchor, which I did for seven years, continued to cover elections and politics a lot during that time. And when I came to NBC 12 years ago, people need a scorecard to keep track of my life, but (laughs) I got to NBC 12 years ago and I still was doing some politics, but I sort of wanted to reinvent myself a little bit. I was I was really looking for a new niche and I felt like social conditions, social ills, whatever you want to call it, you know, the the human condition, I guess. Things things like mental health and things like um you mentioned Bill Cosby, things like assault, me too, sexual abuse, um you know, how children are being treated in our system. I've done a lot of reporting on group youth homes, for example, substance abuse. It all kind of fits in that same umbrella of um, things that really affect human beings. And that's where I've focused, say, the last 10 years. Kate Snow, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Kate Snow on Mediaite.com.